since we started late, I guess we're still in a few minutes. We can have some questions of these guys up here. And um, I'll just really open it up, I, I think, rather than start you know, queuing you guys off with some artificial questions. We'll see what questions we get from the, from the audience. Yes. So I have a question for Chris based off of um, Josh's last example. And I know that some of the, I guess, what I'm familiar with Australian markets and fisheries is that they have a lot of pressure from outside and um, other areas coming in fishing on their territory. Is that going to be an issue that outsiders kind of coming into different areas? How much is that factoring into what you're talking about? Yeah, so we have the situation that Josh is describing um, with the collapse of that MPA, we have that at a national scale. So we're part of the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Management Commission that manages all the high seas fisheries in the western part of the Pacific. Um, <clears throat> as a nation, we've instituted formal harvest strategies, which are sort of control rules that say, you know, if the fishery gets down to this, it's shut. If it gets down to this, you reduce catch. So that you've got these formal rules that basically are trying to remove the politics from these decisions. And written into that, the Minister for Environment and the guy that controls fisheries basically wrote into that, you, know, you will you will consider the whole stock. So that means we've got to worry about what's outside our EEZ. Now, the lovely Spanish fishing fleet has come and landed on the boundary of our EEZ. And I mentioned we've depleted swordfish. Um, that doesn't look like it's a major long-term problem. It's a, it's a sort of short-term problem of depletion of a resource. And it should fill back in. Except for the Spanish are sitting right outside our EEZ and took 600 tons of swordfish out in three months. So we have the same sort of problems, and I think you know it, it comes down to international governance and the sort of you know force of the national government going into these international um, management agencies and really making the point quite quite firmly that you know there needs to be management structure on this and catch controls and things like that. And we have the exact argument coming from our internal fishermen saying, you know, hey, what are you putting regulations on us for? Like, you know, the Spanish, the Spanish are stuffing the thing and they're just outside the easy and there's no control in the bubble. So, I guess the difference is there's some top-down control. So those guys can't abandon it. But it does make the political process very challenging. Yes? I'm really curious about the, the bond or insurance um, proposal. In a lot of countries, if that was instituted, how likely is it that the, the company or agency would just bribe the officials and said they hadn't violated, and so they would not for, forfeit their, their bond or insurance? Yeah. So, it's interesting. I mean, I think if you, if you look at sort of the literature about what's going on in the corporate world, it seems like there's a real move in the corporate world towards more environmental responsibility. Now, you can argue about whether that's PR, whether that's stakeholder pressure. Uh, there's all kinds of arguments about it. But you know, in the end, um, the oil and gas companies, even who are very powerful in Australia, recognize that they need the government to let them do things, right? Like, I mean, ultimately, there's a limit to how bad they can be and get away with it. And <clears throat> so, you know, it's a hard question to, to sort of answer, but I'd say there's a few levels that, that they'll sort of be motivated at. You know, one is PR, you know, one is 
you know, do you really want to get lawyers and go into court and argue with the government for a long period of time? Like, do you really want that hassle? And you know, ultimately, if the government gets adequately pissed off with them, you know, they can't snatch the bond. Now, I think that you can look at the evidence from fisheries and say, yeah, the government's not very good at getting the hard stick and really giving them a whack. But that's the whole point with this hard strategies that I mentioned, that the government's basically said, you know, very senior levels in the government basically said, we want the politics out of fisheries management. We want formal rules that say, you do this and this happens. So I would say there's maybe a move in that direction. I was very much interested by both of your presentation because as a former policymaker from Costa Rica, I didn't saw any of the I didn't saw any message from you guys on technical scientific aspects rather than you know the challenge we have to deal with policymakers, politicians, governments and governments. You know, I have a lot of experience in the Eastern Pacific uh, seascape and as well as the Sea of Cortez. And I and I really come to realize that uh, the major problem that we have in our hands in order to move conservation effort to mainstream and upscale it into development policies is teaching policymakers how important it is, not just from the emotional point of view, right on from the pragmatical point of view. Those environmental services being given by those natural ecosystems are the base of our economies, are the base of our political stability, as the base, art is the base of everything. But we haven't been able to move forward this agenda within major policymakers because they continue to do the, the business as usual. Oil and gas, open pit mining, all of those things that we know are not going to you know, keep us as we are in this planet. Um, I will later to this afternoon share some of the things we've been doing in Costa Rica and probably one of the most important lessons that we have learned is that those policymakers, especially the guys from the economic sector, doesn't understand uh, the importance of our conservation agenda. And basically that's because we haven't been able to speak the same language they speak, the language based on economics, the language based on numbers. And when we talk about protecting ecosystems, we basically talk about you know, critical and dangerous species, and we talk about this and that, but we don't administrate, manage their language, the language of the numbers. We don't tell them what is the cost of doing business as usual, we don't tell them what is the cost of, doing, of not doing anything. And we don't use a lot of numbers. And in some cases, if we don't move forward uh, into that angle, we're not going to change things at all. But I was really very well impressed by both presentations because you sent us a quite uh, direct uh, political message to us. Because this is not a matter of uh, scientists. It's not a matter of uh, biologists anymore. The information is there. Science is there. We need to build a bridge of information for policymakers in a way they could not understand. And, that, and also we need to understand what um, is the atmosphere around policymakers. Those policymakers are politicians. They want to be re-elected. They want to do good things without high political cost. And how are we going to change things uh, in, in, in the short, in the long run, if we take decisions based on short-term impacts? You know, uh, doing good things so I can be re-elected in four years. You know, the uh, major decisions. Uh, uh, for the environment, uh, for the sake of the environment, uh, has a high political cost. You know, putting the finger in the open wound, uh, the stepping on the you know, on the toes of many guys from the industry or development uh, sector that doesn't want to change. Those has a lot of political cost. 
A politician doesn't see a dividend of taking uh, those high-risk political cost decisions in sake of the environment because we are not giving information what are the benefits they're going to have. So I, I was very, very pleased to see you both guys play, giving us a, a very technical presentation, but giving us as well the political measure behind it. We need to work with policy makers, not just making them emotional about how, how, yeah, how, um, uh, how big is the problem, but rather than giving them options and explaining that, uh, yes, it is economically wise to build an environment for the long term. Yeah, thank you, and uh, uh, your perspective is really helpful on that matter. I'd only add that we need to have the numbers, but we need to have the right numbers. In, in our country, especially beginning in the 90s, in fact, the Clinton administration, there was a big push towards cost-benefit analysis of everything, and, and the Office of Management and Budget became extremely powerful in terms of blocking and restricting a lot of environmental legislation, in part because they didn't have the right numbers. They were valuing one side of the equation, but not the environmental side. And I think this push on, on uh, ecosystem markets and ecosystem services is, is a step towards that direction. But as, as Josh pointed out, um, it's in some cases very difficult to figure out what the valuation of these services is. But Otherwise, as you said, you're not in the game because they're just going to say, well, that's worth nothing and this is worth this many jobs and this much oil and that kind of thing. As Chris was pointing out, it's easy to put dollars on oil, harder on fish, harder still on the value uh, intrinsically of an intact ecosystem. So um, I think it's important to uh, keep in mind that we need to do that and we, we need to do it in the right way and I think that there's a lot of push at, at this school, at the Nicholas School and in our institute to get into this ecosystem services. Um, at the same time, we engage the politicians. Thank you for your perspective on that. Can I make a comment? Yeah. So, so I was just in a meeting with our Department of Environment and Heritage, as I one of the senior marine guys, and, and they're, they're actually trying to take the national system of accounts and extract a derived estimate of the value of marine marine resources from the national system of accounts. So you know, this is like the Bureau of Labor Statistics extracting these sort of things. And, uh, and my sense of that is I don't think that's going to be successful. And, and the, but I think there's sort of an alternative way to go at the problem, which is to say, think about the, so, so if you buy the idea that you know, a lot of this environmental commitment is not actually about the value we derive but it's about some ethical belief in the environment. Ultimately, the political process is going to drive them to go back and fix these problems that, that, that oil, gas, or whoever has created. So an, an alternative to saying, what's the value of that biodiversity, and well, we shouldn't develop oil and gas there, is to say, well, if you develop oil and gas there, and something gets stuffed up, the public is going to demand that you go and fix it later. How much is it going to cost you to fix it later, given that Basically, there's going to be a public demand for that if you stuff it up now. And is that cost of fixing it later much larger than the cost of what you're going to, the value of what you're going to extract? And I think, in comparison to the biodiversity argument, in this case, you're actually arguing real dollars in both cases. And so, and, and generally, that cost is going to be orders of magnitude. You know, you've seen the, the stink about the mining. You know, basically, you can't make a mine in the U.S. and make a profit if all the externalities are internalized. It just, uh, just won't work. 
But you have to have in mind, Chris, that the oil and gas companies never repair or restore what they yeah. do in Colombia, Costa Rica, Bolivia, Gabon, Congo, Cameroon. Probably they do it in Australia, probably they do it in the US, but they don't care in the rest of the world. So, uh, and the public opinion is, is, you know, just, there's no public opinion around the environment. Uh, the levels of poverty are extremely high, the level of corruption is extremely high, there's a lack of governance. So I think, yes, of course, nothing will be moved forward. There's a, not a strong ethical uh, principles behind it. Mm. But the short-term decision-making process needs to be enhanced with economic information. And let them, those guys understand that as well as they want to measure the, the health of the economy, they need to internalize those positive and negative externalities of everything we do. I think that um, Costa Rica is beginning to do a, a, a assessment of how to change your tax uh, system into a system that can uh, fully internalize all those negative externalities of production. So we're going to tax on everything that is wrong and against the environment. That will, you know, one way that will stimulate everybody to do better at. And at the same time, will, you know, generate funds for the central government to invest in sustainable technologies and other options. But um, in, in where I work in tropical countries, you know, the situation is so critical, so critical, that if we don't move every single aspect, every single field, um, we won't have time to really prove the, our point. Just to add on, on the different approaches, instead of what we've done in Mexico and what Chris and I have been spending quite a bit of time on the past year or two, instead of trying, instead of going down this kind of extremely complicated and sometimes scary road of ecosystem valuation, we've concentrated on the cost effectiveness. And we go to international funding organizations and say, well, we can save this seabird colony in the U.S. for $2 million, or we can save the same seabird in Mexico for $20,000. And we can scale that up. And Chris and I have been working on a similar problem. Well, fisheries bycatch is, uh, fisheries bycatch is having this impact, say in the Eastern Child Pacific with long liners on, on a certain seabird species, if we shut down the fishery, it's gonna cost $3 million. This is the return on our investment in terms of population growth rate in that, in that seabird. Or we can spend a fraction of that on, on its breeding island and we get twice the conservation return. So looking at how can you most get the most conservation bang for your buck, and can you transfer capital from, say, a revenue-generating impact to a revenue-negative impact in, in, a, in a responsible way? I guess the important thing to think about in there is we never valued the seabird. We never put a dollar value on the seabird. We just said we want the same number of seabirds at the end. And the unit instead of the unit is, in this case, the unit is gain in lambda or gain in population growth rate of the species you're interested in per dollar. You're basically maximizing the conservation value. Other questions? Do we have time for one more question? Yeah. Well, I was just wondering how the stakeholder is involved in these different projects with the ranching and invasive species. Were there people who were mad about um, killing the goats? Uh, it, it varies. It varies on the species and it varies on the culture. But, um, sometimes, sometimes they're happy. For example, for rats, for example, because it all, all, in some cases, it truly is an uh, economic uh, impact in terms of agriculture or sometimes potential health benefits. 
With goats, it sometimes gets complicated because fishermen or the island users perceive that they use the goats or actually do use the goats as, as a food income. But usually, usually you can, uh, with environmental education, we found it usually works, except when you go down the road of animal rights. And that, that tends to be uh, mostly in the United States compared to, compared to uh, South America and Mexico. But that's changing to a certain extent. Well, I want to thank you all. It's been great to be part of this uh, conference. And again, thanks to the organizers. And I just want to quickly thank um, Joseph Puentes. His wife is here. Uh, he's been running this H2O podcast uh, organization. And I think it's a great service. He's been really dogged about trying to get involved and do presentations on the environment, get a podcast and put up on the web. Um, and so I hope that any of you, if you know of other environmental talks, can. Um, can contact him through h2opodcast.com uh, and get some more of those talks up there. I think it's a way of, you know, Duke reaching out to the community, or it's actually a community member coming to Duke and saying, share this with everyone and, and helping us do it. So I hope we can contribute to that effort. And thanks again.